if you recognize um, that chorus that was just played, uh, through it all, uh, through it all, his eyes are on you. And through it all, uh, through it all, it is well. Uh, one of the hard truths that we're going to look at today, or the hard truth we're going to look at today, is something that probably more than many other of the difficulties in life uh, can leave us feeling unwell. Uh, can leave us feeling like the world is crashing in and caving in. And if we can just lay hold of this truth, uh, we'll experience uh, something incredible, something that God has designed for us that so many of us miss out on. It was my eighth or ninth grade year. Uh, I can't remember fully. I just remember where we lived, and we lived in this house from seventh grade through ninth grade. And I, I know from my relationship with this individual, it had to be eighth or ninth grade. I, as I get older, my memory gets fuzzier, and some of you understand that. Uh, I was playing football with Chris in our front yard, or I had been playing football with Chris in our front yard. Chris was a, a young man who was older than me, uh, he was faster than me. He was stronger than me. And Chris and I became friends uh, by way of his sister. Uh, Chris's sister, Robin, and I had been really good friends. And so I would go to youth group with Chris and Robin. And uh, they would come to our youth group sometimes. I would play basketball at Chris's house on Sunday afternoons with men from his church. And Chris and I just had this relationship that we kind of, uh, kind of floundered into by way of his sister, who I was good friends with. But this day in eighth or ninth grade, uh, our relationship forever changed. I, I can't remember what led up to the moment. I can just vividly remember the moment. Uh, someone should have told us that for two teenage boys to be playing tackle football against each other in a hot Georgia sun, that it was probably a recipe, not just for maybe getting hurt physically, but for having feelings hurt and tempers flaring. Uh, but there we were playing football in the front yard. And all I can remember is Chris emphatically saying, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. And so Chris grabbed his ball, his football, and he made his way towards his bike. And as he was getting on his bike and preparing to go down the street, uh, he wasn't pursuing our relationship. He wasn't pursuing resolution. And guess what? I wasn't going to either. So I made sure that I slammed the invisible door in our yard shut. And I said, don't you ever come back. And from that moment on, uh, that conflict defined our relationship. Now, I would still go to youth group with Chris and Robin sometimes, but our relationship was never the same. And little did I know that that experience that I remember from my childhood would be something that I would experience in life again and again and again, and that I would witness in the lives of other people again and again and again. We struggle with conflict, don't we? We struggle with how to resolve conflict when people hurt us, when people wound us, when we wound others and we hurt others. Like, how do we overcome the uh, division and the disagreement and the heartache? What do you do in a relationship when everything in you wants to scream, I'm done? How do you pursue reconciliation? How do you pursue staying together? Whether that's a friendship, whether that's a romantic relationship, whether that's even a relationship within the body of Christ between followers of Jesus. When you're in conflict with each other, how do you keep that from dividing you, uh, but instead pursue something that makes you stronger? Uh, 
I'm not sure there's more conflict today. Uh, I just think it's more pronounced. Um, The accessibility to news, the accessibility to social media, we're able to see conflict more and more and more. We even have a whole word that we used to use for events and tickets and programs and airplane flights that we now have adapted and adopted to businesses and brands and products and even people. And that word is canceled. We now speak of canceling people as though they're a flight that we can no longer board or uh, an event that can no longer take place. In our world of YouTube, where it's so easy to just hit an unsubscribe button, we unsubscribe from people. And our tendency to speak of canceling and being done with um, inadvertently is creeping in and ruining relationships. And instead of pursuing uh, resolution and reconciliation, uh, we're fine just hitting the mute button and just unsubscribing and just distancing ourselves from people. And in the process, uh, we miss out on a depth of intimacy um, that's available to us if we would just lean in. And we would work through the difficulties that come between us as people. And so here's the hard truth for today as we look at conflict. Is that conflict can be a catalyst for becoming more like Jesus. Conflict can be a catalyst for becoming more like Jesus. We actually see this unfold in the pages of Scripture where when people are willing to work through their disagreements, to work through their difficulties, to to come together, they can experience an intimacy like no other. Now, here's a disclaimer, and I'll probably repeat it at least one other time, if not more. I'm not all going to advocate um, through God's Word that if you are in conflict in a relationship that is... Uh, abusive, that it's, you're in danger of being harmed physically, that you should pursue these things. There are other ways to get help for that. But I think if we're honest, most of the conflict we experience in life in our relationships uh, is not of the abuse variety. Uh, and we have an opportunity as followers of Jesus to learn a new way. In fact, as we have set out in this series, these hard truths, if followers of Jesus, if disciples of Jesus will um, adhere to the teachings we see in Scripture, what we see in the example of Christ, it gives us an opportunity to live a revolutionary life, that we can live such a witness, live such a life that people are like, wait a second, they live differently. Like, like there's a better way than what I'm living now, and conflict is one of those places that we have a chance to stand out and to shine. I feel like it's a place maybe we're losing our opportunity, but there's always a chance to change. Uh, one of the reasons why I think conflict um, is, is something we have to talk about is that we see it all over Scripture. If you just had to take a fast reading of Scripture, you will see conflict in nearly every season of uh, human life, uh, God's story from beginning when he created them until even how we live now. I'll just give you a brief overview of Genesis to give you an example of this. You get to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. He creates human beings. He says they are very good. What do we see in Genesis chapter 3? We see conflict. In the sin of Adam and Eve, believing the deceptive words of the serpent, we see conflict not just between God and the serpent. The serpent, Satan, questions God's authority. There's conflict there. Did God really say We see conflict between 
humankind in God because they disobey God and they sin against God. But we also see conflict between humans because what happens when God goes looking for Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? He finds them and he calls out to them, why are you hiding? Well, we're naked. Why are you naked? Well, Adam's like, well, because that woman you put here in the garden with me, uh, she, she told me to eat some of this fruit. So we have conflict, not just between the enemy, Satan and God, but conflict between God and humans and conflict between humans. Move to the very next chapter. Uh, Cain and Abel. Conflict between God and Cain. His sacrifice was not great. That led to conflict between Cain and Abel. I mean, he, he killed, Cain killed Abel. What about conflict between Cain and his own parents, and he's left to wander in the wilderness. Fast forward, Genesis chapter 6. We have this description of the world and how people are doing evil, and every uh, inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. That's a despairing like description of how the world was. People in conflict with a God who is good and God's best. And yet we have Noah whose faithfulness is in conflict with the world around him, who, who builds this ark in, in faith. And fast forward to the Tower of Babel following the flood, and what do we have? Conflict. People trying to be like God, building a tower to the heavens as their languages are confused. Move to Genesis chapter 13, and you find Abram, who's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to be this one through whom God brings his blessing, and yet we even have conflict in Abram's story. Wondering if God will truly come through. Will he be able to have a son through whom the world will be blessed? And what about the conflict between Hagar and Sarah? Between Hagar's son and Sarah's son? Or what about what we see in the offspring of Jacob? And, and, and the sons of Jacob and the enmity we see between the sons and what they do to Joseph and then the conflict in, in, in Potiphar's house and, and then the, the, the conflict between Joseph and his brothers as they're coming to Egypt. There's a chance for restoration. And what do we see when we get to the pages of Exodus? The people of God in conflict with Pharaoh who has forgotten Joseph and all the things that God did through him. And what do we see in the wandering in the desert? We see conflict as people doubt God and they grumble and they complain and they, 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 they curse Moses and we have conflict between Moses and Miriam and Aaron and, and, the, and the story just goes on and on and on. The pages of Genesis and Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. You just go through the whole story of God's people and you see conflict and it usually fits in those three categories between God and humans, God and the enemy, humans and humans. Conflict is a part of our human experience in this fallen world. It's inevitable. And one of the things that we'd be wise to learn is that it's going to happen. I remember reading a book several years ago. I think I've shared this story with you before. It was on integrity by Dr. Henry Cloud. And he, he, he talks in there in this one chapter about the importance of anticipating that things won't go well, that something will go wrong. And some people think, well, that's, that's negative thinking, that's pessimistic. Well, his idea was not that we would be pessimistic, we would be negative, we'd all be doom and gloom, but he's just saying that if we're going to live whole lives, lives of integrity, we have to understand that things aren't going to go perfectly. We live in an imperfect world, marred by sin, and guess what that means? Imperfections. And yet how many of us go through life thinking that somehow in our idealist thinking that there won't be conflict? The reality is that there will be conflict. We'd be wise to anticipate it. Conflict is inevitable. 
Conflict is inevitable because of sin, which we've just seen in the biblical record as, the, you know, as I kind of give you that summary. Whenever people hurt one another, whenever we go against what God instructs us to do and how we're to live, when we say harsh words and we do harsh things, there's division and there's conflict. But conflict's also inevitable because we're unique. We, we're, we're made with different personalities and different interests. I think about the popularity of personality assessments and temperament inventories. Well, why is it that people are drawn to the Enneagram or the DISC assessment or the Myers-Briggs or the Strengths Finders? The list goes on and on. It's because we want to see uh, how we can understand people because there are just things we don't get about others when they're different than us. One of you is a saver. One of you is a spender. And then what does that lead to? Conflict. Uh, one of you processes your emotions out loud and the events of life out loud. And one of you is like, no, I want to keep it all inside. And so when you have an extrovert and you have an introvert and the extrovert's processing out loud, the introvert's like, no, I can't think, I can't hear my thoughts. And then the, the extrovert's like, no, they're not responding. They don't care about me. And so you have all these opportunities for conflict just because we're different and we're unique. One's a processor and they need more time to, to, to work through a decision and so they'll spend five months trying to figure out, you know, what toaster to buy. And that's conflict because you're like, just buy a stinking toaster. And, you know, like there's all these opportunities that aren't even rooted in sin. But conflict is inevitable. And if we will choose to see that conflict is an opportunity to become more like Jesus, reconciling and resolving and restoring and renewing, We'll experience a deeper intimacy in life. I was serving at a church in North Carolina um, right out of college. Audrey and I had only been married maybe a few weeks or a few months. And I remember sitting in the living room uh, with Kenny. Uh, Kenny's daughter uh, had been in our youth group or was a part of our youth group. Kenny's son was about the same age as me and had been just recently, you know, graduated from high school and was, you know, uh, trying to figure out life and work and all that stuff. His wife was there and she was a secretary at our church. And, and so I'm in their home visiting with them. And uh, I remember Kenny just out of the blue kind of saying, Craig, here's something you need to know about being married. He said, marriage is hard. Uh, there are going to be times when you don't like each other. There are going to be times when you don't want to be around each other. There are going to be times when you decide you don't even want to be with each other ever again. And I was thinking, hey, thanks for this pep talk. I've been married, you know, a few weeks and a few months. This sounds great. And then, and then Kenny paused. And with this southern wink that he had, he looked at me and said, but Craig, making up is the best part. Now, I have no idea what he meant by that. I think I know what he meant by that. Um, it was a little awkward for me. But here's what Kenny was saying. He was saying, Craig, if we will persevere, if we will lean into conflict, if we will lean into difficulty, we can taste something that's so much better. And if we as people will look to Jesus, will look to God's word and learn from him when it comes to conflict, guess what? Not only we can become more like Christ, but we can experience a deeper intimacy in our relationships. And I would submit it's an intimacy that we crave and we long for. This is not going to be a full dissertation on conflict and reconciliation, but I want to point you to one characteristic, one character trait that if we would adopt it, if we would pursue it in our lives, would help us resolve conflict, would help us reconcile, would help us experience uh, life Jesus' way and relationships Jesus' way. And, and to help you see that, I just want to take you to Philippians chapter 4. 
the letter of Paul to the Philippians is a beautiful letter. Uh, something that's wise to keep in mind when we look at Paul's letters is that um, originally uh, they were penned by Paul. Uh, they were intended to be read uh, in front of the whole group of believers that were gathered together. In the case of letters, they might be circulated among churches in a given town. And the goal was is that Paul had a message, a message to share, a message to encourage them with in faith. Uh, Paul was looking out for them. He cared about them. And as you read the letter to the Philippians, if you were to read it in one sitting, which doesn't take very long, uh, 25, 30 minutes, you can read the whole letter and you can read it, you know, not at a fast pace, but you can just kind of get the whole idea of what he's writing. You can see that Paul has this like genuine affection for the Philippian believers. He cares deeply for them. And as Paul nears the end of this letter, Paul's actually writing this letter from either house arrest or prison. We're not completely sure, but, but he is in chains for Christ. He tells us that in the letter. And yet he's looking out and he's trying to coach these new disciples of Jesus and how to live. And he moves towards the end of the letter. Uh, he has some strong words. And I don't think they're words that are harsh, and I'll explain why in a moment, but strong words for a particular, um, two particular women in the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter four, verses one through three, uh, here's what we read. Paul writes, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. He has just spent the last three chapters encouraging them in faith. Now stand firm. Verse 2, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have a contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. Paul chooses when, you know, the message is short and time is of the essence to look out to these Philippians and to say, listen, I plead with you, Euodia, I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind. Now, now if you read chapter four, verses one through three, as we just did, you don't see the word conflict arise even one time. But we can see that it's there. Why? why? Why would Paul need to plead? Why would he need to urge? Why would he need to work with earnest to convince Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind unless they weren't operating with the same mind? Why is it that he would have to look to his true companion, who I don't know who that is here, but would encourage him to, 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 to work to help Euodia and Syntyche come together because he knows how useful they've been to the kingdom. He says that they have contended by his side for the gospel. These women had influence. These women were, were serious about following Jesus, and yet something had happened. We don't know what it was. We don't know if it was sinful. We don't know if it was just a disagreement, if it was a difference in personalities. Maybe Euodia was a spender. Maybe Syntyche was a saver. Maybe Euodia wanted to, to, to sing these songs, and Syntyche no wanted to sing these songs. We don't know what it was, but, but they couldn't get along, and so he pleads with them to have the same mind. And it's within those words, the same mind, that we find that secret, I would even say maybe the foundation, that characteristic that can help us lean into conflict and actually become more like Jesus and experience a deeper joy and a deeper sense of intimacy in our relationships. 
It may not seem profound to you, but I want to show you something. The phrase, the same mind, uh, actually, that word occurs three times in Philippians. The most significant of which is in Philippians chapter 2. If you were to read the entire letter in one sitting, you would see that Paul emphasizes how the Philippians process, how they think about life in their world, how they view what's happening around them. And, and the kind of the climax of Paul's letter is this idea of thinking and processing the world like Jesus. Here's what he says, Philippians chapter two, verses one through five. Therefore, if, any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same mind. It's the exact same word. And he describes what that looks like, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He begins to describe what that looks like, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, valuing others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. He says you need to have the same mind. This is what I want for you. This is how you as disciples of Jesus should live is that you should be one in mind. And that mind looks like this. It's not selfish ambition. It's not vain conceit. It's not about you. It's about living humbly, looking out to the interests of others. And he says, in case you're not getting it, it's the example of Jesus. Look at verse five. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he describes that mindset who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus having every right of being the divine son of God said, you know what? I'm emptying myself of those rights. I'm not claiming those rights. It says rather he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He took the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Paul paints this picture for the Philippians. He says, listen, I want you to have this mind. This is how you live in relationship with each other. You live humbly modeling your life after Jesus who gave himself up. Jesus who didn't live out of self-interest. Jesus who didn't live after, out of selfish ambition. Jesus who didn't live out of vain conceit. Jesus who looked to the interests of others rather than his own interests. He lived humbly. And so Paul says, this is the mind I want in you. So when Paul gets to the end of his letter... And he writes to Euodia and Syntyche, and he says, to be of one mind? He's drawing them back to what he's just written prior in the letter. You want to come together? I plead with you to have the mind that I've already talked about. I want you to have the mind of Christ. I want you to live humbly with one another. That's how you'll overcome whatever stands between you. And I would submit that what will help us more than anything else when it comes to conflict is if we would resolve to be humble people. If we would resolve to look to the example of Jesus and lean in with humility. Humility is the foundation. Humility is the bedrock of reconciliation and resolution when it comes to conflict. Humility is really rooted in three things. Humility is rooted in a right understanding of who God is, uh, that God is great, that God is holy, that God alone is all-powerful, that God alone is in control, that God's ways are best. And that leads to a right understanding of ourselves. 
that, that I'm not the one in control, that I'm not the one inherently has the perfect answers or, or knows what's best in every situation. It's the right understanding of who he is, which leads to a right understanding of who I am. I find my place underneath him. That's what humility does. It says, I, I know who I am in relation to who God has made me to be. And guess what happens? We know who he is and we know who we are. It helps us see who they are. And isn't that what so often happens with conflict is we have a they that, may be an, that they might be an employer that they might be a sibling, that they might be a spouse, that they might be a boyfriend or girlfriend, that they might be a coworker, that they might be someone in our community. And we're so adept at saying, they did this or they did that. And humility says, God, this is who you are. This is who I am. So this is who they are. And we begin to realize that they have a name and they have a story. And they are men and women who need Jesus just like us. And that humility allows us to pursue resolution and reconciliation rather than simply hitting cancel or unsubscribe on the relationship. So often when we're in conflict with each other, we try to depersonalize as quickly as possible. Because I have to remember that you have a name and you have a story and you're made in the image of God. Guess what? That's personal. But if I can just throw you in a category of they, then it's easier to vilify you. It's easier to think harshly of you. But if I have to say, wait a second, we're sojourners. We're, we're both journeying in this world. We're, we're both sinners uh, made by a God who loves us and wants relationship with us. Then, then that forces me to pursue reconciliation and resolution because I see the value you have because of the value that I have because of who he is. And when we can wrap our minds around choosing humility, the first step towards reconciliation and restoration, that's what he encourages you and Syntyche with. Like, listen, be of the same mind. And what's that same mind? That's Jesus. And Jesus modeled this humility. Like, Jesus didn't cancel us. Jesus didn't unsubscribe from us. I mean, if anybody had a reason to say, listen, I am done with them, it was God with humanity, was it not? Here's a perfect place. Here's a perfect garden. Here's a perfect relationship. And guess what? You threw it all away. But God said, you know what? No, I love you so much. I will send my one and only son. And I will pursue you. I will lean in when you have moved away, when you have sinned, when you have hurt, I'm not gonna cancel you. I'm gonna send my son and he will come and he will live among you. He'll be susceptible to all the, the degradation and the difficulties and the hardships and the, 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 the suffering of this world. And he will do it because he wants to make things right and he wants to reconcile and he wants to restore. And if you will believe in him, if you will have faith in him, if you will turn to him, if you will submit your life to him, you will experience the beauty what life is really meant to be. And that's what Paul encourages Euodia and Syntyche in. Listen, I plead with you, Euodia. I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind. Treat each other as Jesus would. Be humble towards one another. Do you want to know how we lean in and how we live revolutionary lives in a cancel culture and an unsubscribed culture? We as disciples of Jesus say there's a better way. I'm gonna move forward with humility. I'm gonna not look out just for myself and my self-interest. I'm gonna look out for you. I'm gonna recognize who he is and who I am and who you are because of that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean on, I'm gonna pursue that resolution. I'm gonna pursue working through this conflict. I'm not gonna take my ball and just go home. 
I'm not going to slam the door on my yard and say, never come back. And what would happen even within the body of Christ if we chose to, in humility, pursue the relationships with one another, overcoming the conflict and the doubts and the disappointments and the disagreements and the difference in preferences? What would happen if we modeled that in our world? What would happen if those of you who have employees chose to model humility in resolving conflict? What would happen if you chose humility in resolving differences in the world? I would bet there would be far less calling people out on social media. There would probably be far less, you know, going and talking about people rather than talking to them. Because humility says, I'm pursuing that relationship. I'm doing this as Jesus did. And our culture needs that. The answer to the canceling and unsubscribing lies in the body of Christ and Jesus' way of conflict resolution. And that's modeling our lives after his. Think of the words of James, James chapter one, verses 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What helps us be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Humility, right? I am in a hurry. Like, like literally, if you translate the words there, it says, be in a hurry to listen. Like, I am rushing, I am running forward to hear what's going on. And yet what so, so often happens in our culture we are slow to listen, right? Someone starts talking, we're already thinking about what we're gonna say. And so we are slow to listen and we are quick to speak. And as it surprises us that so often we are quick to be really angry. And yet a better way is offered through the humility that's found in Christ that we would lean in and that we would be quick to listen. You know what, let me hear what's going on. Let me, let me understand why you did that, even though I disagree with it. Let me, let me, let me hear why we are so different. And then... After I've listened, let me speak. And oftentimes that will lead to a lot less anger. But it's driven by humility. Humility drives us to being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. And that's the way of Jesus. Paul pleads with the idea. Paul pleads with Syntyche to come together with the same mind. It's looking to Jesus and his humility. What relationships in your life right now are being rocked by conflict? What relationships are being rocked by conflict? What would happen if you humbled yourself and moved in? Again, I'm not prescribing that you put yourself in a position to be abused. But in situations where abuse is not going to occur, you're not susceptible to it, what would happen if you leaned in? We would show the world a whole, a whole better way. There would be far less canceling and unsubscribing. Even when it comes to sin, Jesus offers us a way that requires humility. Matthew chapter 18. I intentionally didn't land in these words this morning because just two years ago, I preached on conflict from these very words, but they're too good to not include at all. Matthew 18, here's what Matthew records of Jesus. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. What would change in how we handle conflict if we just listened to those words of Jesus? When you perceive that someone has sinned against you, when you perceive that someone has done wrong against you, 
if you just stopped, instead of talking about it with somebody else, and instead of posting to social media, and instead of you know, uh, going and, and pursuing all these other means, if you just went to that person in private, that's what Jesus says. Go to them in private, just between the two of you. Here's what happens when you are humble enough to go to someone in private. As you listen, uh, sometimes you realize that what you perceived as sin actually was just something that was misunderstood. And you can work through that and you can reconcile together. Or you go to them and they recognize, listen, I really wronged you and I need to repent of that and I need to say I'm sorry. And, and there's, there's an opportunity for changed behavior. And some of you are thinking, well, Craig, what if they don't listen? Like, what if I go to them and they're like, nope, I didn't do anything wrong, no big deal. Well, Jesus makes allowance for that. Look at verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus is not prescribing taking people with you. They're just gonna take your side and gang up on someone, but taking people that are mature who will listen. And oftentimes what I've experienced in life, if I go to someone privately usually things are restored and repentance happens right there. And very seldom do you even have to move to step two. And if you move to step two, I've experienced that very seldom do you even have to move to step three because if people have a group that are with them and they're, they're saying, listen, we're really concerned about what's happening, typically that behavior will change and the truth prevails. But even if that doesn't work, there's a third step, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. And what I have found is seldom does that have to even happen. But it requires us to live with humility. Paul's pleading with Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4. But God is pleading with us. Would we be men and women who would pursue the same mind, who would pursue the way of Jesus in a world that says, you know what, let's cancel, let's unsubscribe. Will we be people who say, no, let's do it Jesus' way? Because conflict, when we do it Jesus' way, can be the catalyst for becoming more like him. And becoming more like him means more reconciliation and more resolution and more restoration. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to relationships, that's what I want. The division is so exhausting, isn't it? The conflict is so exhausting. So let's pursue him humbly and let's model his humility. Let's model what he did for us and fight for the relationship and not take our ball and go home. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your hard truth. God, you know the unique struggles of our Western culture. You know the unique struggles of being human beings who wrestle with conflict and differences. And God, I just pray that you would help us. Help me. Help those here in the room. God, help those who are listening or watching online. God, help us to resolve to pursue you, to work to be of the same mind, the mind that was in you, to be humble, to be reminded of who you are and who we are and what that means about those around us and 
God, I pray that as we humbly pursue resolution and reconciliation modeled after you, that, that we would see deeper intimacy, that we would see um, just a, a more significant experience of relationship for the good in our lives. And God, I pray that if there are those who are here, and I believe there are, that don't know you, that they would see the love you have for them, that you have not canceled, you have not unsubscribed, you have not turned, but you are pursuing and you died for them, that if they would turn to you, they could find hope in life. God, lead us and guide us. In your name we pray, amen.